Well, good morning, church family. Pastor Matt here. As you can imagine, this past week, we as pastors have been in contact with a ton of people just trying to touch base and trying to get a pulse on not only our church, but things happening in our church network, both locally and globally. And we've been in touch with our friends and our ministry partners down in Honduras to kind of learn of how this situation with the coronavirus is impacting them. And and we've really learned that their country is not set up at all to handle this situation medically uh, or just with any of its infrastructure. And we've learned that many people down there uh, don't have adequate food supply. And we've been in contact primarily with Kike to learn that the entire country is actually on lockdown. And their lockdown is, is a lot more strict than we are experiencing here in the states. And in the midst of this, Kike has become aware of multiple needs within his community from neighbors and friends of people who don't have enough food for that day, let alone a week's worth of supply of food. And so he's been really seeking to love and serve and figure out how he can be a blessing in his city. And he's wrestling through this tension of, well, the government says I can't leave my house, but I know people, personal friends and neighbors who don't have any food. So what do I do? How do I, how do I help? How do I serve? What does this look like? And so we as pastors and, and some of you may be aware have just been entering in and praying that God would guide him and lead all of them in this situation and intervene in some way, shape or form. And, uh, I'm, I'm happy to report to you that uh, somehow, some way, uh, Kike has been given special permission from the government to travel freely throughout the city of Seguatepeque and also to a nearby village that they have historically been serving to deliver baskets of essential goods to homes. So this is a, a huge testimony to God's faithfulness and, and the way that he is working. It's incredibly good news and a ray of light really in the midst of this dark situation that is impacting all of us. You know, we are currently facing a global threat unlike anything our generation has ever faced. Our present situation is a different kind of war and that our enemy is not another nation or some evil regime. The enemy is a virus, a virus that is invisible to the naked eye, highly contagious and infectious, a respecter of no nation or people group. And as I got to thinking about this, I just started thinking about all the parallels between what is happening with this virus and what is going on in the spiritual world. And the spiritual war that the Bible tells us has been raging on in our midst ever since the garden. We know that the spiritual realm exists, yet we cannot see it. We know that the goal of the enemy has always been to see death, division, and destruction prevail and permeate the world that God created. And we've seen this. We've seen this virus take lives. We've seen this virus reveal divisions in our world, in our government, in our grocery stores even. And we've seen this virus wreak havoc on our economy. And while many people uh, will just see this virus simply as a naturally occurring pandemic, 
we would be wise to realize that there are spiritual agendas that we cannot see that are scheming behind uh, the scenes of this whole entire thing to increase our fear and our frustration to make a bad situation even worse. And we as a church need to have spiritual discernment. We as a church need to be a spiritual light to serve the needy and to share the hope of Christ as we have opportunity in our worlds. And in our passage today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. And it's fascinating because as we look at Luke 22, we really do see the curtain pulled back and we get some insight into what was happening in the spiritual realm some 2,000 years ago as Jesus is quickly making his way to the cross. And we see in the spiritual realm how the pride of man and the ploys of Satan often work together in their rebellion against God. And yet we're going to learn that the source of our strength, Jesus Christ, is going to give us instructions of how we are called to live now in a world that is filled with pain, suffering, and evil. Well, last week, if you were with us, Nate did a phenomenal job walking us through Luke chapter 21, which could not have been more timely for us. But we saw at the close of chapter 21, a multitude of people gathering uh, to hear Jesus early every single morning. They were all coming to the temple to glean from the words of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you now to grab your Bible and let's continue our study in the Gospel of Luke as we see Jesus on his journey to the cross where he will purchase our salvation. So Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Okay, so... Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was this yearly festival, this holiday that was established to remind Israel of their deliverance from physical slavery and oppression that they were under in Egypt. And it was this celebration of how God sent Moses and showed incredible signs and wonders to eventually allow Pharaoh to let God's people go, ultimately liberating Israel to becoming their own nation. And uh, there, there were many elements to this feast, to this Passover celebration, but the two centerpieces to it were the unleavened bread and a sacrificial lamb. And it's important for us to realize that this Passover meal was the last meal that the Israelites partook of before leaving Egypt, as God had instructed them, each of their own household, to take a lamb without blemish. And to sacrifice that lamb and to cook that lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over the doorposts of their homes. 
And the reason they would do that, because the last of the ten plagues was that the angel of death would pass and travel through the land and would kill the firstborn of every household that did not have the blood of the lamb on its doorposts. And when the angel of death came, when it saw the blood, it would pass over that home and death would not visit that place. That's why it's called the Passover. And the unleavened bread was due to the fact that they had no time to allow the bread to rise. They would soon be on the road, leaving the only life they had ever known in slavery to become a nation that would be set apart unto God. And so they had to make this unleavened bread in haste. They had to do it quickly. And that is why that is part of remembering uh, this Passover is eating the unleavened bread to remember the haste in which they had to leave Egypt. So again, this this is a setting that's really important for us and that this is a sacred Jewish holiday. It's a sacred feast to remember God's goodness and God's grace and God's deliverance. And it's with this backdrop in mind that the religious leaders are the ones scheming to put Jesus to death. Verse 2, it says, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Think about this. Those who should have been preparing the most for humble worship and remembrance of God's grace and deliverance are the ones plotting to kill Jesus. They're plotting to break one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people that was to set them apart from every other nation. But these leaders, these spiritual leaders had one problem, and that is that the crowds all respected and revered Jesus, and they wanted to hear from him. And so the religious leaders are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because they don't know how to get Jesus away from the crowds so they can put him to death. And now we see the spiritual powers enter into the story in verse 3. It simply says that Satan entered Judas. And after Satan entered Judas, it says he went away and conferred with the chief priests and with the officers of how he might betray him to them. Jesus was one of, or Judas, excuse me, was one of Jesus's original 12 disciples, but he was not a true disciple. We learn in the gospel of John in verse 12, verse six, that Judas was a thief. That he had been the one entrusted to keep the money for all the disciples as they traveled around. And that he would regularly help himself to whatever he wanted. And so Judas, while appearing to be a follower of Jesus, was actually going to be the one who would betray him. And Satan had already had a foothold in Judas's life at this time. And now Judas, under the control of Satan, goes to those who also want Jesus dead and they strike a bargain. They make a deal. They plot a scheme. And we learn in the other gospel accounts that the price is 30 pieces of silver. And that's the price through which Judas will betray Jesus and lead these religious leaders to him where there are no crowds around to protect him. And verse 5 It says that they were glad. They were glad. Evil was rejoicing in this day because their schemes were coming to fruition. So the stage is set. The cross is near. 
Judas, the religious leaders, along with the influence of Satan, are devising a plan to betray Jesus, who is the rightful king of Israel. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you in the new is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is at the table for the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. All right, so the Passover is now at hand. Jesus sends Peter and John on ahead to prepare for the feast in a typical Jesus fashion. He just says, hey, you're going to find somebody and they're going to be holding a jar and they're going to show you the way. Just go, trust me. And they do and they go and they find this place and they set up for the feast. And the hour has finally come to observe this feast and Jesus and his disciples gather and recline together at the table to observe the tradition. And in verse 15, we see Jesus say to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it with you again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of now, it's most likely at this point in time, Jesus has celebrated at least one or two Passover meals with his disciples. But this one is different. This is the last Passover meal that Jesus will eat on earth before he suffers and dies. But we see that this is not going to be the last meal that they will enjoy together. Jesus says that when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, we're going to feast together again. There's a coming kingdom, and you will be ones eating with me at my table. Now, you can imagine things for the disciples in this moment are getting pretty intense. Jesus had just informed them this is their last meal together and that he is going to soon suffer. Jesus has their full attention right now. 
And this is where Jesus transitions to instituting the Lord's Supper, a sacrament that the church has regularly partaken in until this very day. We see verse 17 through verse 20 that he took a cup of wine as a symbol of his blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of sin. And he took the bread that was a symbol of his body that was going to be uh, broken, really torn to pieces, his flesh torn open. And he tells them that to, to drink of the wine and to eat of the bread as a way of remembering what he was about to do for them. And it's incredible because this meal that was meant to be the remembrance of freedom from physical slavery and deliverance out of Egypt has now become a meal to declare this freedom from spiritual slavery for every human being that's born into this world. We're all born as spiritual slaves and Jesus is now pointing us to the path of spiritual liberation. The lamb who was slain for the Passover feast was a remembrance of the blood shed by by the ancient lamb of Israel that would protect them from death in Egypt. And now Jesus said, no, 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 this is all a foreshadow about me, the true and only pure lamb of God who came to shed my own blood to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus goes on to tell them after instituting the Lord's Supper that there was a traitor in their midst. Verse 21, he says, the hand of him who is going to betray me is at the table with me. Jesus was not unaware of Judas's betrayal. Jesus was not unaware of Satan's influence on Judas's life. This is part of what had to take place so that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Now, we could easily take time to talk about betrayal and what that could look like or those who've fallen away from the faith, but I really want us to stay focused on what Jesus just instituted with his disciples. He's just told them to remember the most important thing. And he calls us today as followers of Jesus Christ to remember this meal to partake of this meal on a regular basis through bread and through wine. And I love that Jesus just so masterfully uses these everyday uh, food and drink in the times and in the day as a way of drawing our attention to him and what he ultimately has done for us. And as a church, one of the, the biggest things I'm grieved about that we can't gather together this morning is that we don't get to partake of communion in the same place. We don't get to come to the table together. This is a significant thing that the Lord asks us to do. But I'm encouraged and I hope that that you're able to prepare the elements within your own home. Maybe you as a family uh, followed the recipe that we sent out and made some unleavened bread. And maybe you have your own wine or grape juice. But we want to encourage you to partake of communion with your family when this time together is done. Because, you know, for us, the reality is, is if we as a church are going to continue to see Jesus rightly, the way we have to do that is by regularly remembering our King. Remembering that He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world so that we could inherit His kingdom. 
And what I love about communion is when we partake, we're doing multiple things. One, we're looking back at what Jesus has done for us in history, but we are also looking forward into the future at what will take place at the wedding supper of the Lamb found in Revelation chapter 19, where we will all sit at the banquet table of God with Jesus and celebrate that we have a hope and a future and joy forevermore. Well, let's continue in our passage, Luke 22, verse 24. It says, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them uh, was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as your youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, Jesus said, am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I don't know about you, but as I've read through this, just seeing the change in the conversation has been really fascinating. Going from Jesus's instruction uh, about this meal and its way to remember him to talking about the fact that one of them is going to betray Jesus to now there's this dispute that arises about who at the table is the greatest and I just think about, you know, intense situations in life and when, when we're really stressed out, I, I think this can be kind of the way we function, that we're, we're a little bit all over the place. <laughs> we kind of bounce all over the place in our thoughts and our ideas. Our conversations can quickly change gears. We can lose focus or just, just be very random and, and not thorough in the way we think or communicate. I know that happens to me, but here we see Jesus use this opportunity to rein the disciples back in and to tell them and remind them of the way of God's kingdom, which is the way of a servant. Verse 27, he says, who is greater, the one who sits and reclines at the table or the one who is serving those at the table? He's like, is it not the one who's sitting at the table being served? Like, yes, obviously. But then Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. I have taken the posture and the position of a servant. You think I'm the Messiah? You think I'm the King of Israel? You are right, for I am, Jesus says. And yet I have come to serve. And the calling for you is to emulate me. Jesus has set for them and has set for all of us an example of servant-hearted, selfless leadership. And he says that the pathway to honor and the pathway to greatness in his kingdom is to live as servants on earth. And that's the calling for every single Christian. That is that is call on every single one of our lives is to faithfully serve our king and to follow in his footsteps. The greatest among us will be servants of all. Ones who look at the Savior, 
who humbled himself to death on a cross, who laid down his life for our salvation so that we might follow in his footsteps. Now again, you and I can't save anyone. We can't make anyone believe in Jesus Christ, but we sure can serve people. We sure can share the good news of salvation and show how our lives have been changed by the Savior. All right, let's keep going. Verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that you might that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you and that your faith may not fail And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them. It is enough. I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating and and, and stirs my curiosity as to what it looked like when Satan asked for permission to destroy Peter. Uh, I'm not sure what that dialogue or conversation looked like uh, between Satan and God. But uh, what we do know is that we see that Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. Jesus prayed for Peter. And after this comment from Jesus, we see Peter go on to say, whoa, 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 no, no, no. I'm ready to be imprisoned for you, Lord. I'm ready to even die for you. There's no way I would betray you. There's no way I would deny you. But ultimately, this was Peter trusting in himself. Peter had not been humbled yet to the point of recognizing that everything Even his own faith was dependent upon the strength that alone comes from God. God is the one who supplies and God is the one who strengthens our faith. And Jesus told Peter that that very night he would deny even knowing him. Peter, he didn't want to deny Jesus. Peter didn't think he could deny Jesus. But as we'll see next week, fear would soon cause his faith to be shaken. And this is what trials and hardships can often do in our lives. They shake our faith. They test us to see what we really believe. And if you've been reading in James this week, you realize that the testing of our faith is really the only way of refinement. It's the only way we grow and spiritually mature is when what we say we believe is actually put to the test. When it actually costs us something. And I want to draw our attention 
to verse 37 because Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament to show us what the cost of our salvation would be. It cost Jesus something incredibly precious, his own life. And Isaiah 53, 12 puts it this way. It says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Being numbered among the transgressors means that Jesus would soon be condemned to a criminal's death. But it's important for us to step back and to realize that his condemnation would purchase our liberation. His death would bring us life. His suffering would be our salvation. He poured out his soul for the sins of many. And now Jesus prays that we would believe in him, that our faith would remain strong under trials. Even though we are the transgressors, even though that we are the rebels, Jesus is praying that we would find salvation and hope in him. Jesus is staring the cross in the face. He knows what is coming in just a few short hours ahead of him. He knows that he is going to bear the penalty of sin and absorb the wrath of God that stood against sinners like you and me. That he was going to nail that to the cross so that we could be set free from the spiritual bondage that we are in and the spiritual death that will come if we are apart from Christ. And for you and I, our calling as Christians is now to be continually putting ourselves in a posture of trusting our King. To keep looking to Jesus by faith and trusting that all He has done through the cross and through His resurrection is enough for our salvation. And to believe and to know that our Savior is actually interceding for us. That we would continue to be strengthened in our faith. Every single one of us is tempted in different ways to doubt. And yet it's our calling and and the charge to continue to turn our eyes to Jesus and trust that he will keep our faith strong and see us through until the end. As Hebrews says that he is the author of our faith, but he is also the sustainer of our faith. So we must look to him for our strength. All right, let's keep going. Verse 39, it says, And he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
All right, so in the previous passage, we saw that Jesus prays for us, but now we are seeing that Jesus calls us to pray. And he specifically exhorts the disciples on the Mount of Olives to pray that they might not enter into temptation. And as he gives them this charge to stay awake, to be alert and pray, he goes on ahead of them to be alone with God, his father. And he kneels down to the ground and in earnestness, he prays that the cup of suffering might pass from him. But at the end of the day, he acknowledges that he ultimately desires to do the will of God. And while we believe that Jesus is fully God, we also believe he was fully man. And we see his humanity in this moment and that he doesn't want to suffer. If there's any other way, he wishes that that could be the case because he knows that torture awaits him. And as he prays with honesty, we learn that he is not alone. God the Father is with him, but we also see the curtain pulled back again into the spiritual realm. And we see an angel comes to minister to him and to strengthen him. And as he is strengthened, he continues in earnest and intense prayer. As he is still physically distraught, he is sweating. This moment is so intense. Sweat is dripping off his face. And as he finishes his time of prayer and pleading before God, he rises to his feet. He returns to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. You know, the disciples were human too. And the disciples were extremely exhausted in this moment. It is the the late hours of the night at this time. And And they are just exhausted. They've had this intense meal and conversation with Jesus. They're trying to figure out all that's happening around them. And they're just worn out. And I don't know about for you, but for me, the last few weeks have been pretty exhausting, both mentally and emotionally. As we continue to get news of this virus spreading, of the economy crashing, some people have lost their jobs, others living in fear that they will lose their jobs or lose loved ones to this virus. And something that I've seen uh, as, as I've talked with many people is that just the regular sorrows of life don't stop in the midst of a pandemic. There have been multiple people who've had miscarriages. We've seen the death of family members. We've had people in our church who've lost their jobs. We've had diagnosis of cancer. The normal sorrows of life are ever present all around us. And this is why as a church, why we must continue to be awake. We must stay alert and engaged in the unseen spiritual realm. You know, I've found that it's it's very tempting and very easy to want to escape what feels so chaotic and out of control by going to food for comfort or just sleeping longer to try to avoid what we might awake to. There's a thousand other forms of distraction that we might be tempted by. But I want to challenge us especially now that we're under this new ordinance this week, that we are to stay in isolation within our own homes to pray. Jesus says, pray that you will not enter into temptation. And I pray that we as a church do not fall 
into temptation. Pray that we would have wisdom and strength and be merciful. Pray for our neighbors, for our families, for our churches and for our friends. Pray that we would see Jesus and seek his kingdom first by engaging in the invisible spiritual battle that is raging all around us. I believe, church family, that the only way we're going to do this is if we heed the instruction from God's word and specifically what we have seen today, that we are called to remember the gospel, that we are called to seek to be servants in a world that is self-serving, that we would strive to continue to trust our king and fight for the faith that we've been given and to faithfully pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done even in the midst of a pandemic. And I just want to challenge us, church family, because I think many of us may be tempted to think that prayer is simply wishful thinking. Prayer is not just wishful thinking. Prayer is communion and communication with the God who spoke this world into existence. Prayer is humbly coming before the one who can change anything in a moment's time. And I want to encourage us, I'll be getting more information to you soon about this, but there are churches all throughout northern Colorado who are going to be taking responsibility for different days as these next few weeks unfold and to steward that day as a day of prayer so that every hour of every day would be covered and saturated with God's people seeking him and seeking his help through prayer. And so, church, I look forward to participating and getting this information out to you again. But Prayer is the way we engage most profoundly in this battle because we are humbly acknowledging that unless God shows up, unless God is the one to intervene, unless God is the one to move in our midst, nothing is going to happen. And we as God's people want to be dependent upon him and trust him and come before him through faithful prayer. And so let's pray now unto that end. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, forgive us for all the ways we get distracted. Lord, forgive us for all the ways we try to escape. Minds in our hearts as we remember the gospel. Change us, Lord, as we seek you, as we trust you, as we call upon you through prayer. Would you transform our lives and our hearts that we would see Jesus rightly and that we would seek his kingdom first. God, we confess that we need your help. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we ask you now to lead us on the path of life so that we would know you more and be a beacon of light for you in this dark world. It's in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
Amen, church family. Well, it's good to be in your living room with you this morning. Uh, if you did prepare the communion elements, I just want to ask uh, you to, uh, with your family, go through uh, the process of communion together. Take the bread that maybe you've made, or if you find some bread in your house, just take it and break it amongst yourselves and remember Jesus' body that was uh, torn for us and grab some wine or grab some grape juice and partake in remembrance of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. I love you, church family. I can't wait to see you again. But until then, let me just encourage you to press into the Lord and press on in the faith. We'll see you soon.